Hello, and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn Podcast. The podcast where we, Jennifer and... Kalia. Two book nerds talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Two warnings. This podcast uses barnyard language. Why limit ourselves to only nice words? Some things warrant not-so-nice words. Also, spoiler warning. We will be talking about the endings of both book and movie, so prepare yourself. Okay. Let's get into it. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Special guest. will edify. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Special guest. Burn Kelly gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Pages and Popcorn podcast. Joining me today on this episode is Matthew, a.k.a. the Ghost Apologist, a.k.a. Mayfan San, a.k.a. my wonderful husband, who is in the other side of the house. And we will be discussing the sci-fi classic Ender's Game and the movie that was made based on said sci-fi classic. But real quick, before we get started on that, I just want to remind you that you can email us at pagesandpopcornpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and you can find all of our show notes where we have links and sources and all kinds of exciting stuff on our website, which is kmmamedia.com. There's a Pages and Popcorn link right up there. There's also a ghost anthropology link. So if you're interested in ghost stories and folklore with an archaeological bent, check out Matthew's podcast, Ghost Thropology. I would say anthropological bent rather than archaeological because I do very little digging on the show. <laughs> That's true. Hi, Matthew. Hello, Kalia. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's been so long since I've seen you. (laughs) Yes. Yes. It's been minutes, mere seconds. If you recognize Matthew's voice, that's because he has been here to talk about a couple things in the past. I think the most recent one was King Solomon's Mines. Nope. The Big Sleep. Oh, Oh, the Big Sleep. Oh, yeah. It was actually not that long ago. Okay. Yes. The Big Sleep, King Solomon's Mines, and um, uh, Amityville. Amityville Horror. Amityville Horror. Amityville Horror. Yes. Close enough. That is the other thing that we Close enough horror. Close enough horror. (laughs) Anyways, here we go with so this is fun. I didn't I didn't know this until I started doing the research, but Ender's Game series, often referred to as the Ender Saga, also the Enderverse is a series of science fiction books written by American author Orson Scott Card. The series started with the 1977 short story Ender's Game, which was later expanded into the 1985 novel of the same name, which is what we read. And then he, he updated it and fixed some things and re-released it in 1991. But I checked and the copy of the book we have is from 1985. And then it spawned a bunch of other novels and short stories and comic books and audio play and a film, which is what we are also going to talk about. So here's the recap of book one from the Ender's Verse, aka Ender's Game, the 1985 version. 
In the future, humanity has mastered interplanetary spaceflight, and as they explore the galaxy, they encounter an insect-like alien race called the Formix, derogatorily called the Buggers. After discovering a Formic base on asteroid Eris, war breaks out between the humans and the Formix. The humans achieve a narrow victory, but fearing future threats of a Formic invasion, create the International Fleet, IF, and train gifted children to become commanders in their orbiting battle school. Andrew Ender Wigan is a third, a rare exception to Earth's two-child policy allowed by the government due to the promise shown by his two older siblings. The eldest, Peter, is a highly intelligent sociopath who sadistically bullies Ender. His sister, Valentine, is more sympathetic towards him. The IF remove Ender's monitoring device when he is six years old, seemingly ending his chances for battle school. He is bullied by a fellow student, but Ender turns violent and attacks him. Unknown to Ender, this bully later dies from his wounds. IF Colonel Hiram Graff visits Ender after hearing about the fight. Ender attests that by showing superiority now, he has prevented future struggles. Graf offers him a place in the battle school. Once at battle school, Graf and the other leaders covertly work to keep Ender isolated from the other cadets. Ender finds solace in playing a simulated adventure game that involves killing a giant. The cadets participate in competitive war simulations in zero gravity, where Ender quickly masters the game with novel tactics and dominates his opponents. To further wear Ender down, he is promoted into one of the army groups where he is bullied by Bonso, the leader. As soon as he starts to get used to life there, he's moved to another army group and then is eventually promoted to command another new army composed of raw recruits, then pitted against multiple armies at once. But Ender's success continues. The army groups fight each other on the regular and Ender can't seem to lose. They go from having one battle every few weeks to one every day and then multiple times a day with very little rest and sleep in between and yet they keep winning. While going through all these different groups, Ender becomes massively good at command as well and makes some friends, notably Petra, a girl sharpshooter who helps train him, Elaine, his first friend, Bean, one of his recruits is very young and small and reminds Ender of himself, etc. Ender's jealous ex-commander Bonso draws him into a fight outside the simulation and once again seeking to preemptively stop future conflicts, Ender uses excessive force. Like the first bully before him, Bonso dies from his injuries and this fact is also hidden from Ender. Meanwhile on Earth, Peter uses a global communication system, aka the internet, to post political essays under the pseudonym Locke, hoping to establish himself as a respected orator and then as a powerful politician. Valentine, despite not trusting Peter, agrees to publish alongside him as the more radical Demesthenes. Demesthenes. The point is to rouse the rabble and for her to go appeal to the fringes and get a bit wild and crazy while Peter will want to flock to Peter. He will appear sane by comparison. Their essays are soon taken seriously by the government and they start to influence Earth's politics. Though Graf is told of their true identities, he recommends that it be kept a secret because their writings are being politically useful. Ender, now 10 years old, he was six when this whole thing started, is promoted to command school in Eros after a brief respite on Earth. After some preliminary battles in the simulator, he is introduced to Mazer Rackham, a hero from the Formic War who saw key patterns in the Formic behavior. Ender participates in more space combat simulations created and controlled by Mazer. As the skirmishes become harder, he is joined by some of his friends from the battle school as subcommanders. Despite this, Ender becomes depressed by the battles, his isolation, and by the way that Mazar treats him. 
For the final test, Ender observation by IF's commanders, Ender finds his fleet far outnumbered by formative ships surrounding their home world. Hoping to earn himself expulsion for this from the school for his ruthlessness, he sacrifices his entire fleet in order to fire a molecular disruption device at the planet. The device completely destroys the planet and the surrounding buggers' fleet. He is shocked to hear that the IF commanders are cheering in celebration. Mazer informs Ender that the simulations he's been fighting were real battles directing human spacecraft against Formic fleets via an Ansible's instantaneous communication that Ender has now officially won the war. Ender becomes more depressed on learning this, realizing that he has committed genocide. Ender spends several weeks isolated before recovering and learns that once news of the Formic homeworld destruction reached Earth, Earth's powers began fighting amongst themselves again. Ender is prevented from returning home as he would be exploited by Peter and other politicians to fulfill their own purposes. Instead, he remains on Eros, which becomes a launch point for colonization of former Formic worlds. Valentine is when one of the first colonists to arrive and Ender decides to join her. On a new planet, Ender becomes the colony's governor. As he explores the planet, he discovers a structure that matches the stimulation of the giant game from battle school and inside finds the dormant egg of a Formic queen. The queen telepathically communicates to Ender that before the first Formic War, they had assumed humans were a non-sentient race for want of collective consciousness, but realized their mistake too late. She has reached out to Ender to draw him here and request that he take the egg to a new planet for the Formics to colonize and build. Ender takes the egg and with information from the queen, writes the Hive Queen under the alias Speaker of the Dead. Peter, now the leader of Earth and aged 77 with a failing heart due to uh, relativistic space travel, recognizes Ender as the author of The Hive Queen. He asks Ender to write a book about him, which Ender titles The Hedgeman. The combined works create a new type of funeral in which the Speaker of the Dead tells the whole and unapologetic story of the deceased adopted by many on Earth and its colonies. Ender and Valentine leave the colony and travel to many other worlds looking for a safe place to establish the unborn Hive Queen. The end. And then they made a movie. Ender's Game is a 2013 American military science fiction action film based on Orson Scott Card's 1985 novel by the same name. Written and directed by Gavin Hood, the film stars Asa Butterfield as Ender Wigan. The supporting cast includes Harrison Ford, Haley Stenfield, Viola Davis, Abigail Brinson, and Ben Kingsley. Here is the recap. In the future, humanity is preparing to launch an attack of the, on the homeworld of an alien race called the Formics that had previously attacked Earth and killed millions. The Formic invasion was stopped by Mazur Rackman, who crashed his fighter plane into the Formic Queen's ship at the apparent cost of his life. Over the course of the next 50 years, gifted children are trained by the international fleet to become commanders in the new fleet for the counterattack. Cadet Andrew Ender Wigan draws the attention of Colonel Hiram Graff and Major Gwen Anderson because of his aptitude in simulated space combat and the way he dealt with a bully. He goaded him into attacking alone, then won the fight and kept kicking him once the enemy was down. Ender's older brother Peter and older sister Valentine were rejected by the program for being too violent and too compassionate, respectively. Ender, however, is recruited into battle school. Graf brings Ender to the orbiting battle school and places Ender with all the other cadets his age, but treats him as extraordinary, thereby subjecting him to being ostracized by the others. The cadets are placed in squads and perform training games in zero-gravity battle rooms. Ender quickly adapts to the games, devising new strategies older students have not yet seen and making a few alliances. 
Graft assigns Ender to Salamander Army, led by Commander Bonzo. Bonzo, believing that Ender is inept and a liability, prevents him from training with the rest of the squad. Another cadet, Petra, takes Ender under her wing and trains him privately. And in the next match, Bonzo benches Ender while the rest of the Salamander Army fights another team. However, seeing the team losing and Petra in trouble, Ender comes to her aid and helps Salamander Army win. Meanwhile, Ender plays a computerized mind game set in a fantasy world which presents difficult choices to the player. In one situation, Ender creates an outside-the-box solution to overcome a seemingly unsolvable problem. Later, he encounters a formic in the game, and the simulated images involve his siblings. These are noted as unusual additions to the game, which is seemingly altered by Ender's interaction with the computer. Graf promotes Ender to lead his own squad, which is made up of students who have gained Ender's trust. They, put in, they are put in increasingly difficult battles. In a surprise match against two other teams, including Bonzo's Salamander Army, Ender devises a novel strategy of sacrificing part of his team to achieve a goal, impressing Graf. Bonzo attacks Ender in the bathroom after the match, but Ender fights back. Bonzo falls during the struggle and is seriously injured. Distraught, Ender quits battle school, but Graf has Ender's sister Valentine convince him to continue. Graf takes Ender to Humanity's forward base on a former Formic planet near their homeworld to meet with an elder Rackman. Rackman explains the Formics share a hive mind mentality, and now that is how he exploited it to win the battle. Ender finds that his former squad members are also there to help him train in computerized simulations in large fleet combat. Rackman puts special emphasis on the fleet's molecular detachment device that is capable of disintegrating matter. Ender's training is rigorous, and Anderson expresses concern over this, but Graf notes they've run out of time. They can't even replace Ender. Ender's final test is monitored by several fleet commanders. As the simulation starts, Ender finds his fleet over the Formic homeworld vastly outnumbered. He orders most of his fleet to sacrifice themselves to protect the MD long enough to fire on the homeworld. The resulting chain reaction burns over the surface of the planet, killing the entire population. The simulation ends and Ender believes the test is over. The commanders restart the video screen, showing that Ender's fleet actually participated in live missions and destroyed the former homeworld. Ender is horrified. While asleep, he is awoken by the former queen and directed to a former structure nearby as being similar to the ruined castle from his mind game that he used to play at battle school. The queen acknowledges Ender's role in the genocide and moves to kill him. But when Ender shows remorse, she spares his life. It is determined that the Formic were only seeking a source of water and did not want conflict. The Queen gives Ender a Queen Egg that she has been protecting. With the war ended, Ender is promoted to Admiral, given a small ship, and left to his own devices. In a letter to Valentine, he confides that he's going into deep space, determined to start a new Formic colony with the Queen Egg. The end. So this is a book that has been like in my consciousness for a very long time. I believe that you asked me at one point, have you ever read this book? And I said, I think so. But no, I, I don't think I read, have read this book. I think I read parts of this book, but I think I was mixing it up in my head with Starship Troopers and armor and the last Starfighter. <laughs> So I, I can see you mixing it up with Starship Troopers and The Last Starfighter. I, I should say the book Starship Troopers, not the film. Right. Um, and The Last Starfighter, because it does have certain things in common with The Last Starfighter. And there's elements of its tone that are similar to the tone of the book Starship Troopers. Plus, there's a few things in common. 
I've never read armor, so I can't speak to that. I don't remember armor very much, except that there was like hand-to-hand combat and bugs and and interplanetary thing, and I might have read it around the same time. So, I mean, I am a goldfish, and I might have actually read this book, but I didn't remember very much. But I knew the premise was, and then I started thinking, well, is it the is it the same as the Last Starfighter? And there is. There's this thing where they're playing a game, then it turns out that it's not really a game; it's real, right? That's mm-hmm. like okay. Yeah. The the difference is that um, in the Last Starfighter, it's always a simulation when it looks like a simulation, and when he actually goes into battle, he's really there, and, and he doesn't know he's being trained for a war. Whereas in Ender's game, he knows he's being trained for a war, but he doesn't know when he's really fighting it. Right. Right. Yeah. So, anyways. Um, and then I remember when the movie was coming out, all of the controversy with the author, which we'll talk about in a minute. But I was mm-hmm. definitely one of those people who was like, I'm not going to spend money to see this movie. Are you kidding me? No way. So even though I love sci-fi, it, I just wasn't going to see it because, you know, that that was that. And so it kind of been on the list. And then you read it not too long ago. Just I don't know why for a lark. Just I was looking for something to read and uh, I saw that we had it. It was the book was published when I was around nine or 10 years old. And it was one that was kind of in the periphery throughout my childhood. But, um, you know, most of the science fiction I read was stuff that my dad had lying around or that, you know, as a teenager, I got from the library. Well, I grew up in a neighborhood that at the time reading was not a popular activity. So a lot of the kids I was around wouldn't have read it. it but it was one that i heard about from time to time and i saw you had a copy and thought you know i should read this yep so you did and then i think you said you should read this 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 would be good for the podcast and i was like okay and here we are and i should say reading it it was very clear that i was at this point in my life not the age group this book was intended for and I found myself wishing I'd read it when I was maybe 12 or 13. I think I would have enjoyed it immensely at that point. Reading it now, uh, there's certain things that I got out of it now that I don't think I would have gotten out of it at that age. Some of which is because there's things that Orson Scott Card put into the book that seemed far-fetched at the time and uh, actually accurately reflect the world we live in now, <laughs> you know? in some ways, but there's uh, a lot of other stuff that, you know, I look at it now as an adult and I think, yeah, that's unrealistic or that character just is clearly there to appeal to kids, which of course they are. This is a book for kids. I mean, I, I guess I, it's middle, middle grade kind of stuff, but I mean, in the eighties, it wasn't, there wasn't really the YA genre that there is now. So sure. it was just a science fiction book that focused on kids. I wouldn't consider this a child's book or a kid book. So th- there's a long history of science fiction writers writing stuff that was aimed at younger readers, teenagers on down. And Starship Troopers, which we already talked about, is a good example. Uh, Heinlein wrote a lot of books that were specifically marketed as at teenagers or tweens. And Ender's Game definitely felt like a book in that vein. You know, not just because the entire cast of characters is young, but because you know it really focuses on feelings of alienation and you know having to come into your own that I think would have appealed much more certainly to me and I think to a lot of people when you're in your early teens or preteens as opposed to as an adult. 
yeah, it's definitely a lot of, I would say teen angsty things, you know, you versus the world, nobody really understands you and, and all of that kind of stuff being made into something that maybe you don't want to be, or maybe you do want to be. I, I definitely see that. It's interesting to me though. I mean, just the premise is so ridiculous that they were going to start training children at age six. And then like the entire world's military army, everything, international interspatial intergalactical fleet is going to be run by an 11 year old it's just i mean it's just um because again it, it was geared towards people that age so. I, well, but see, I, it wasn't I, I don't feel like this book is geared towards 11 year olds i feel like maybe teenagers sure and so that's one thing i think that the the movie did uh it I won't say well, because I, I, you know, have opinions about this movie, but they aged Ender up quite a yeah. bit. And that was, you know, it made it easier to watch. We had a six-year-old not too terribly long ago. The, you know, I, the idea of watching such a little, like a first grader go through this stuff would be pretty horrific. Um, so I think that was a wise choice. It does take a little bit away from the horror of it, but I have to tell you while reading the book, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It says he's six. It says he's seven, but he's clearly not like this. Clearly in this version of reality, seven-year-olds aren't the same as our contemporary idea of seven-year-olds because uh, you can't have it be both ways. You know, you can't have it be this, these little, little kids doing these big things. It, it just, it doesn't, it makes it, it, the cognitive dissonance of that is just extreme. So you kind of have to like say, oh, but it's a, it's a different world. There are different kinds of seven-year-olds or something because otherwise it just doesn't work for me. One of the things that I thought was interesting. Um, so I found myself both while reading it and after reading it thinking is Ender a Mary Sue character and a Mary Sue for any listeners who may not know is a character usually but not always an author insert who just happens to be good at everything and is just such a wonderful person in all ways and there's times when Ender definitely comes across that way at the same time he was intentionally bred with the intention that he would be able to do these things so I, I think you're right he is and probably the rest of his classmates they're not normal kids in fact even his apparently brilliant brother and sister had flaws that kept them from getting in. So none of these kids are normal. So I'm going to quibble with one thing of what you just said is the word bread because Ender wasn't bred to be a genius. They were hoping that he would be a genius. That's why they let his parents have a third. He was trained and, you know, and his natural inclinations and proclivities were molded shaped you know through brutalization in a lot of ways to mm -hmm. to become something to become this genius and i think that there is it's not a main theme of this book but i think there's a little bit of this whole nature versus nurture aspect because if he had just been able to be a nor quote-unquote normal kid i i you know i i don't think he would have been does that make sense i think he would have been I think he could have been more normal. He would have yeah. always been bright, but I think that a lot of what made him what he was, was how, and they, that's why they manipulated him on and on and on. And that's, that's a failing. Actually. I think the movie, the movie did not show the manipulation the same way that the book did in the book. It was, 
constant and we would have these the first couple of times we're, we're getting the conversations between the watchers, we're not given very much information at all. It's just the dialogue. And eventually mm-hmm. they kind of get fleshed out. And so you're like, who are these two voices that are just talking about Ender and like are judging him and making decisions and then planning how they're going to manipulate him or how they're going to set him up for failure and like how they're going to keep him isolated and make it so he can't make friends. And every time he starts to relax or kind of get, you know, figure out what's what, they totally changed the rules on him. And there's this interesting line that they say, um, Graf, I think it is, says, Ender Wigan must believe that no matter what happens, no adult will ever, ever step in to help him in any way. If he does not believe that, then he will never reach the peak of his abilities. And, <laughs> okay, I find that horrific as a parent mm-hmm. of a child and maybe just as a human, but I feel like there's a reason that this book really resonates with conservatives and those bootstrapper people and, you know, even some people in the military is that, you know, the narrative is about being amazing despite having crap thrown at you instead of being amazing because you're helped along or encouraged. And I just think that that's a, you know, it's, it's like a justification for the abuse because that's what's going to make him great, you know, if he doesn't rely on anybody else. But it's ironic because he doesn't fly over there and take on the alien hordes by himself. He literally has to not only delegate to other commanders and control a fleet, but also it's made very apparent in the book, and they did not do this in the movie, that he has to rely on his sub-commanders and they has to have this built-in trust your instincts. Okay, I'm going to give you the, the parameters and then I'm going to trust that you're going to do what you need to do to get it done. And I'm going to go over here and I'm going to, you know, so like, the teamwork was essential, (laughs) but, but, but no, he has to be alone. (laughs) So one of the things I took from that, especially at the end of the story, I think that you were supposed to find that really disturbing and disgusting that they kept doing that to him. And I get that there may be readers who didn't, but I think that that was the intention, especially when you get to the end and they make him commit genocide. And he finds out that these aliens weren't a menace. Once they realized that humans were sentient, they wanted to leave us alone. Mm-hmm. And you know, what I took away from that is, yeah, they can make him into this killing machine. They could do all of these things. They could make him smarter and tougher and better. And what was the point? They were absolutely wrong. Their goal was just factually incorrect. And that made them morally wrong. And so to me, you know, it seemed like if you're reading this and thinking, well, this is great because, you know, it's a pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you've, you know, all everything that makes uh, your life hard is just going to make you tougher. It seemed like the book was actually in the end saying, no, it makes you a sociopath. Yeah, I, I agree. But it, you know, there is a lot, there's a lot of people who read it that way. Um, who mm-hmm. think, oh, this is a book about violence. And there's, there's definitely interpretations that have have this be a a book about child abuse in that like the parent is is telling you that they love you but then they're hurting you and you're you're hurt by the the authority but it's for your own good and you know how do you rectify that especially the idea that ender has you know that i can't kill something until i know it and i I, but right before i destroy my enemy i love them and it's just it's very flawed in my opinion it's it's very complicated it's gross in a lot of respects and um yeah but i I think it's intended to be gross i 
I don't know, because then you read what what Card has his opinions about it and what he's saying, and he's talking about violence, but he is definitely a well but this is what the military does and it's good like he i don't think there's a quote from card that's like genocide is good but there are some quotes that are pretty close to that um you know we we should have gone over to vietnam and the korea like that was a good choice you know that we got involved because that's our you know it was better for those people that we showed up and killed a bunch of them i mean i mean it's it's not great (laughs) so and i know that we can differ we can separate the author from the work and we can read and we can do in different interpretations but when the author is clearly like this is the point of my book yeah i I don't i yeah yeah but i don't want to talk about card quite yet i want to keep talking about the book and and some of the themes um we've touched on it briefly about the theme of authority and do we trust authority i I think that this book and, and to a lesser extent the movie has leaves you know makes us question why we question, you know, why we appreciate authority and why we obey authority and when is it good to, and when is it not a good idea to, but it doesn't really have the follow-up question of what's the motivation behind the authority. Like, you know, we trust that the, 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 those above us have the best interests for people at heart. And that's why we let them do things or we, you know, go to their battle school or whatever, but like you said before, they had, they were factually wrong. So, you know, where's the checks and balances on authority. And I think the book did a good, a much better job of talking about the checks and balances of uh, not just authority, but political agendas and groupthink and, you know, all of that stuff, because we had the addition of Locke and that word I can't pronounce. What was this? Amityville. No, (laughs) the other word I can't pronounce. Demosthenes, Demosthenes, the the writers, right? So his siblings are back at Earth playing this political game that they completely left out of the movie. Yeah. I thought that was, that was actually a very interesting, at first when we started doing that in the book, I was like, why are we taking away so much time from actual Ender? This isn't Peter's game, it's Ender's game. Get back to Ender. But I, I think it was there for a really good reason. I think it made some really good points. Interestingly enough, I'm going to jump into some trivia real fast. The original 1985, it's talking about uh, this basic, it's very Cold War. It's very Russia is the bad country. But when he redid it in 1991, he changed the, the countries involved because even in those six years, you know, the, the fall of the USSR. So I thought that was, that's interesting. And your mileage will vary in whether or not you think that authors should be allowed to go back and do that. I don't think they special editioned it. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, I think there were some other changes too, which is, I personally don't think you should be allowed to do that. I think it should live as it was published, but that's me. The, the kids doing the political thing. I have kind of a love hate relationship with that because on the one hand, I think that it does speak to the themes of how do people gain power and should you trust the people in power? And are the people in power even who they say they are or who you make them out to be in some cases? Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that, you know, that was pretty interesting. At the same time, I just, I had such a hard time buying that it was a couple of preteens taking over the world. I think that because the tone of the book was so serious, I had a hard t- harder time with that than I would have in a book that had been, you know, goofier. 
Well, I mean, if we can buy that six-year-old Enders out there creating military strategy that nobody's ever thought of before, then it's not that much of an extra stretch to go to 10-year-old, you know, Valentine is is able to write at at an adult level. Because again, these aren't typical children. These are special children. I I guess. But I I think for me, the idea that Enders in this weird environment where he's being manipulated and things are happening to him made it easier for me to accept that he was having these experiences than, you know, thinking, yeah, a couple of preteens are literally taking over the course of government on earth. Um, even if they're brilliant preteens. I, I don't know. Like, I feel like once you buy the first part of that, the, the six-year-olds and the seven-year-olds and the whatever, and once you buy the premise that the world is like cool with putting all of the military into the hands of a prepubescent child, um, then I don't think it's that much of a stretch to think that people could pretend to be somebody else on the internet and apply, you know, um, really resonate with fringe groups. I, I mean, that's the thing, the fact that, you know, this was written in the eighties and this is way mm-hmm. before the internet, as we know it way before social media, but you could, you could see this happening. So people going, you know what, let's set up a straw man so that there's like a very clear us versus them and I'll, I'll argue this and look extreme. And then you come along and talk me down a little bit and be more rational. And even though your ideas are a little bit crazy, it's not as crazy as mine. It's, it's almost like, dare I say, American political parties <laughs> where. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and the fact that a lot of agenda is being driven by people who are using extreme rhetoric to, to drive it, and in many cases have no connection whatsoever, nor accountability for governing. Um, you know, that, that struck me as like, wow, as much as I have a hard time buying these preteens doing this, I guess it's not actually all that much stranger than the existence of QAnon as a political force. Yeah. Because QAnon's just fucking stupid. Whereas right. at least these kids might be making some good points, you know? Yeah. And, you know, you were saying you have a hard time buying that uh, they would put the fleets in the control of an 11 year old. I'm just going to point out, we gave nuclear launch codes to Donald Trump. So, you know, the real world is much stranger. We didn't. But uh, yes, the the collective we, I suppose, which is another interesting thing in, in this world because of the threat of the aliens, the 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 wars, the petty wars and politicals and and boundary lines between nations has kind of shrunk or disappeared because we have this common enemy. And that is a thing in sci-fi that has happened a lot. You know, how do we, how do we create world peace? We get attacked by somebody bigger than us so that we'll have, we'll have to band together. And I actually, you know, the pessimist in me, maybe the pragmatist, but maybe the pessimist in me likes the fact that once the buggers or the formic or whatever in the book, once they're dealt with the world's like, Oh, okay. That problem solved. Now let's start bickering and fighting amongst one another. And now we're going to have trauma and drama and like, you know, arguing again because we're humans and we can never just like get along without some reason to. And I thought that was interesting. And yet you're a Star Trek fan. Hey, that's idealistic. I want to live in the Star Trek world, but I feel like this is a little bit, that one element of this was more believable than, than a lot of other things. So one of the things I actually thought was pretty interesting about that is that you know, anthropologists uh, who work in places that had a colonial presence come in, but prior to that had a lot of different ethnic groups or factions living there, 
have recorded that in many instances, colonial powers showing up caused local peoples to band together in a way that they previously hadn't. It's not a universal. I can think of plenty of counterexamples too, but um, you know, it's also not uncommon. You know, this, oh, these people are very different than us and they're bad. So we can all band together because we have to deal with them. Yeah. Um, but then of course that can fall apart easily. I mean, you look at like um, you know, the way that a lot of countries in Eastern Europe Europe and also in other places where uh, Soviet or other colonial powers kind of taking control, you know, fell apart after the colonial powers left. So yeah, I think that that does, that tracks. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing that I, that I wonder about, where were the humans who were completely ready to sign up and help the uh, Formix? <laughs> well, they, they weren't allowed in battle school, apparently. Well, I guess the Formix didn't even realize we were sentient. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's always fun. I like it when the the alien species is actually alien and not just another human. I mean, I love Star Trek, don't get me wrong, but it's a lot of uh, more two-legged humanoids with funny foreheads and necks showing up, you know. I I, I kind of dug it. The the difference of course being that in the book we had gone out and found them and you know, in the movie they had come here to attack us, which is interesting. Mm-hmm plays on the 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 idea of tension definitely differently yeah well and in the book i think that in addition to the fact that they were not going to attack earth again they had no interest in doing that which was true in the film and the book both but in the book humans entered their area humans drew attention to ourselves there were two there were already been two phases in the book like we had there was phase one and there was phase two and both times uh, lots and lots of humans had died and it wasn't until you kept reading that you realized phase two was here but phase one was out there we attacked them then they Mm -hmm. came and attacked us and now we're getting ready to go attack them again so that they don't come back and attack us a second time Whereas, you know, at one point he even says in the book, well, we, we won, so maybe they're going to leave us alone. And they're like, no, no, no. Think about it. Think about the bullies that you beat up, you know, you, you win, but then you have to overwin. You have to win to the point where there's nobody left to fight back, which is, you know, nobody says genocide until they've committed genocide, but they're definitely laying the groundwork in for that Mm -hmm. early on, you know, and, and developing their new, their new planet killing machines basically a little a little bit of star wars there with the military base is fully operational and it'll destroy your entire planet except this time we're on the side of the empire <laughs> well all right the, 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 the this book and film both were basically a military violent nihilistic harry potter yeah except that i feel like in harry potter we got character growth and I don't really feel like we got character growth in in this book or this movie from Ender. We we got that he was horrified at the end. In the book, we got a, a lot more of that, of him not wanting to be a killer. But that was basically all he, he didn't want to be a killer. And he was a genius. And then at one point he was like, I think I'm going to quit. And then they talked him back into it. And so then he he's continuing and in the book, they make it very, you know, very explicit that he is trying to get kicked out in this mm-hmm. final battle. He's like, you know what? 
um, I'll just destroy my whole fleet and do this, this horrible thing. And they'll, they'll be so horrified that they'll kick me out and I can finally rest and not have to keep going. Because again, the difference of the book and the movie, the book has this ramping up of tension, like yeah. it's this, and then it's this, and then it's, and it's like, he can never rest. He can never sleep. And they're just, they're doing more and more and more. And like, and it's not just him, it's his classmates and they're actively burning out by the end of the book. They're just exhausted. And and we feel exhausted and we f- and they're very aware the rules keep changing. You're supposed to do your battle simulations once every couple of weeks, and then they're doing yours every day and then multiple times a day and then against two other teams. And then you only have 10 minutes to get ready or the other team gets to go into the thing and set up before you instead of you both starting at the same time. Like they kept changing the rules and Ender was aware of that and it was making him mad and he was frustrated. And so, you know, like I said, when he gets to the and he's like, I'm just going to fuck this up. And then they're going to be mad and they're going to let me go back to like my little lake and they're going to leave me alone. And oops, no, I, I've committed genocide. And now, you know, everything now the war is over. So he has an emotional reaction to what's happening to him. But I don't really feel like he he grows and especially none of the other characters either. Like they become friends. But I I don't know. I just I didn't really feel like one of the reviews I read said that it was like reading about somebody playing a video game. And I was like, yeah, it kind of is. It's like, and then he does this and he wins. And then he does this and he wins. And then he does this. Mm-hmm. And then he's tired. And then he does this and he wins. And then he's really tired. Then he does this. And 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 while the book did a much better job of ratcheting up the tension, I, I and I do think that we saw a little bit of change in Ender because there was more time. He starts at six. It ends mm-hmm. when he's 11, like half of his life going through this. In the movie, it's very sped up. Like I said before, he's older, but it's he looks the same at the end of the movie as he does at the beginning of the movie. Like it, it feels like it's six months, maybe, you know, of all of this. It, it's so fast. And so we don't really get to sit with with the, the extremeness and the tiredness. But I also just really felt like nobody changed. There didn't feel to be character arcs. So I, I would agree with that. Um, but I also... I don't think that that was the type of book this was. I think the book was supposed to be more about seeing somebody develop, for lack of a better way of putting it, a skill set, and then seeing what that skill set takes them to and seeing them be horrified by that than it was seeing how they changed as a person. I think the book would have been better had it been about him changing as a person as he built the skill set, because I don't see how building that skill set doesn't cause you to change as a person. Um, but I also don't think that it was Orson Scott Card's intention uh, based on just reading the book. I've not read anything he's had to say about the book specifically, um, but I got the impression from reading it that it wasn't his intention to create a character study or anything of that sort. Well, no, and a book doesn't have to be a character study to have characters that grow. Like I, I personally, for my money, a book that is going to resonate more with me is going to have either characters I can root for, or I feel strongly about or whatever, but usually there's some element of growth or change because it, it, that's what makes it a story that, I mean, and again, that's, you know, your mileage will vary definitely, but I feel like, because I I think you're right. I think card is making an argument. Is he making it about war? Is he making it about violence? Is what is, is he making it about abuse? Is he making it about power? He's, he's trying to give us some kind of message, some kind of moral thing is coming across. Right. And, 
but stories to, are aren't always arguments and arguments don't always make the best stories. Mm -hmm. I think if you want to make a point about like PTSD or genocide or, you know, anything, I think it's more effective to write an essay or write a nonfiction about those things. If you're writing a story, then it should be taking us through experiences that are emotional and the experience is the end in itself. It has to leave us with the ideas to chew on, not just be like, here's a bunch of ideas. And there's a couple of characters who are the mouthpieces for these ideas. Does that make sense? And I know that's maybe mm -hmm. just a writing style thing, but, and I, and I feel like because we don't get that growth, Ender's like the hero, but he's also, he's the victim, but mm -hmm. he's the hero. And I, I like this line um, from another, from an overview that I read is that Ender has immense power and no responsibility. The mastery of a killer without ever choosing to kill, his remorse when it comes only does him credit since he cannot legitimately be faulted for something that he didn't know that he was doing, yet his heart bleeds for the buggers. And it's like, yeah, so Card has written this character that is the victim, but is also being treated as a hero and I think Ender has some self-reflection about how fucked up that is, especially towards the end, but nobody else really mm -hmm. seems to. So I didn't, yeah, there's definitely elements of this. I didn't, I didn't like. Yeah. You know, I think that that's a really good way of putting it the way that that person described it. You know, it's, he doesn't realize he's killing when he's killing and then is horrified after the fact, even though, you know, he's arguably faultless on it. Right. And then, and that's there to make him likable because we don't want, Peter. We don't want the sociopath who is going to kill and want to kill. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to have him not be aware that he's killing. That's what keeps him pure. But also we have to have him feel bad about it because, you know, he's that mix of Peter's willingness to kill and Valentine, Valentina's, you know, compassion. So like this is the perfect commander. But here's the thing. He knows he's training to go to war and in war he will have to kill. Mm -hmm. So even though he doesn't know that he's killed, he knows he's preparing to kill. It's, you know, not the same, but it's, you know, you're headed so, somewhere. Th there's two things actually that I kind of like to bring up. And the first is, it's interesting that this book was written before the development of drone warfare, because an ongoing issue with drone warfare is that you have people who are killing literally by remote control. Mm -hmm. And some of the people doing that are suffering some really severe consequences as a result. It's not uncommon for drone pilots to have problems with PTSD and so on and not actually get any sympathy for that because, well, they weren't out there getting shot at. Well, no, but they're still killing people, which still goes against a lot of human drive. But at the same time, it seems like it makes it easier for at least some subset to do it because you are doing it by remote control. It looks like a video game. And you don't have quite the same, you're killing by machine rather than face-to-face. -face. You're detached. So yeah. it takes the humanity out of it. Yeah. I think that were this book written, you know, post 2001, it might've been a bit different because they might've actually had to find a way to contend with the fact that Ender knows that, yes, this is all a game now but it's not going to be for long. Or even he might've started having inklings that, wait a minute, we've got technology that lets me control stuff at a distance. I know that 
am I sure these are simulations? But yeah, it's interesting that in the book, he's like, I don't trust the adults. It's us versus the adults. The adults are can't be trusted and blah, blah, blah. They're the enemy. But he never even like conceives that they're they're lying to me about all these other things. But not this. This is totally not a thing they would lie about. You're like, "Mm, Mm -hmm. yeah, okay, sorry. And and again, I think there's a degree of at the time the book was written, we didn't have certain technologies, both for entertainment and for warfare that we have now. And so I don't know that readers at the time would have put it together the way that to, uh, to us, we look at it and say, well, yeah, obviously this is not a simulation at this point, kid. I don't know. Cause their technology, I mean, not only do they have their almost faster than life trap, but they have this Ansible thing, which lets you mm-hmm. have like instantaneous communication light years away, which doesn't actually make any sense. No, like, at all and they just throw it in there at the end they're like oh yeah of course we have this technology yeah this is not the expanse (laughs) Um, but more's the pity right and i'm not saying that the characters in the book shouldn't have thought of that i'm saying i don't think that the author or readers when it was published would have and so the book's a product of its time that way the other thing though that as you were talking you're reading that quote from the review I thought about was the uh, scientists who were involved in the Manhattan Project. They developed the atomic bomb. You know, they knew they were developing something that was going to be used to kill people. And they all had their reasons for doing that. But after the fact, they had a wide range of reactions from complete and utter despair over what they'd done to denial that they had done anything at all. Mm -hmm. And a whole lot of stuff, you know, at other points in between. These were people who, in a sense, they didn't drop the bomb. They weren't the ones who commissioned it. They were doing technical work. And yet most of them seemed to carry a weight on them for the rest of their lives as a result. And it's interesting that, you know, they would create this character of Ender who basically can't carry that weight because he's never allowed to narratively, even if we get told that he's upset over it. Right. And how different would it have been if he'd realized that he'd killed, you know, either the bully or Bonso? Yeah, which in the film, he actually does realize he's killed Bonso, even though people lie to him about it. Yeah. And that's one of his, that's his moment of, I don't want to do this anymore. And then he goes mm-hmm. and gets talked back into doing it anyways, which the sister talking him back into it was much more believable in the book. Agreed. Not only because we had spent more time with her, so we kind of knew that character, but also like her argument makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Anyways, they really just cut them out completely, which sure. I think that one of the main things though, and speaking about this whole Manhattan project thing, which I hadn't thought of, it's just a really good point though, is the idea of do the ends justify the means, right? Mm-hmm. You know, if there's a bully and you do, if it, is it good to take the bully out so badly that they'll, you're not just winning this fight, you're winning the next fight. And then can you extrapolate that into warfare? Can you extrapolate that into other things? And where's the line? Card seems to be saying there isn't a line and Ender is fully justified and this is right. But even though Ender feels bad because he killed without meaning to kill, nobody else is overly bothered that there was these murders, right? They see it Mm -hmm. as a good thing because they know, well, he was just trying to make sure he would never have to have this fight again. So it seems like it's, we're saying that this is cool. Like this is, if you have a bully kids, don't just take him out, take it all the way out because that's okay. And I, that's, I'm not okay with that. This is the way that the book reads to me. Inter was wrong to do that to the bullies, just as it was wrong for the adults to have him 
commit genocide. You know, I see, see parallels being drawn pretty clearly there. The adults, however, are so wrapped up in the idea that we have to win this war because they've become so convinced against the actual facts that this is a literal war for their very existence, that they're willing to justify and go along with anything if it means surviving. And I think that that actually would have been better developed as a theme if there had been something to indicate that maybe the adults should have picked up on the fact that the buggers were in fact not coming back. I think that's actually a place where this book falls down is, as you point out, Ender himself feels blame, but doesn't really carry any. But also the adults, if there'd been any reason for them to question whether or not a genocidal force was coming for them, then their decisions, I think, would have carried more emotional weight because then you'd actually see them as ethical questions rather than oh, well, they ended up being wrong. Right. Well, I, yeah. I almost feel like it's a cop-out by being wrong. Oh, oh, yes. You know, we killed them, so they couldn't kill us. Raw. Oh, well, it turns out they weren't trying to kill you. Oh, mm-hmm. damn. Okay. But c- let's rewind. Killing them so that they don't kill you. Is that okay? Well, I guess it's, it. well, it's mute now because they're all dead. Well, yes. And it's moot now because, well, they weren't really coming to kill us. So we really should feel bad, but we're not going to <laughs> like, I just, by, ta- by making them be wrong, it, it, it changes it in the way that we talk about what they are doing. And I don't think it should, honestly, mm-hmm. like, I feel like I'm with you. I think it would have been a much more interesting idea if they had, if it hadn't been a hundred percent sure that they were doing the right thing, or if we didn't end up knowing that they were wrong because that that almost i mean it changes kind of the point but i think it would be a little bit more of a thorny thing that because because ultimately you don't know you don't know when mm-hmm. you're in a fight if that person's going to come back or not and you don't know that they were you know ender has this pseudo magical moment with a queen and is like oh they didn't mean us any harm okay but the queen is maybe not a reliable narrator. Like I, who knows, like, is she saying or gorking or whatever into Endor's brain, whatever she needs to say so that some part of her progeny will live on. There's no way of knowing that she's telling the truth. Like maybe the buggers really did want to kill all the humans over and over and over again. We don't know. All we have to go on is this fever dream sort of thing that happens mm-hmm. because apparently when we introduce the idea of the ansible two thirds of the way through the book so that we can have instantaneous communication, then that's the thing that was letting the bugger queen communicate with Ender while he was still in battle school, doing a computerized simulation game to put thoughts into his brain so that then he would later down the road, you know, years later, recognize the geography of a planet. I mean, it is, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, the whole, the last 20% of this book, just, I was like, what is happening and why there has got to have been a better way to make this work. <laughs> it just, it lost me a little bit. I didn't, I didn't particularly care for that wrap up. And, and at least in the movie, when they had the queen bug thing be in his computer game, the bug was actually there. We saw the bug and we kind of saw pictures of his siblings. And so you're like, okay, that's weird. Something's manipulating him. So it kind of was like 
at least breadcrumbs leading us to something, but, and then they were on the Formike world. That was where their base was after the genocide. He was literally able to go outside and pick up this egg that was like right there. It's opposed to in the book, he had to go to a whole other planet with the geography that he'd been seeing in this game. I mean, it's so complicated. Even describing it, I'm confusing myself again. The, the last 20% of a science fiction novel descending into like pseudo mystical nonsense is what I like to call the Philip K. Dick effect. Oh, I feel like Heinlein did this a lot too, actually. He did in some of his later books, his earlier books, he didn't, but yeah, he, the, the second half of Stranger in a Strange Land yes. is pseudo-mystical nonsense. That's literally what I was thinking about. Yeah. <laughs> it, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I remember somebody saying, oh yeah, Stranger in a Strange Land. It's about a man who's raised on Mars, comes to Earth and starts a mystical sex cult. As I thought that's an exaggeration. No, that's an accurate summary of the book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, I got to say, I liked this book a lot better before we started talking about it. Because, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, you know, you got a good point there. Yeah, Sorry. That, that actually doesn't work. Well, Kalia, but, killer of fun. <laughs> but I, I think, though, that it also kind of gets to... Get, when we watched the movie, I didn't think the movie was spectacular. I liked it well enough, Ugh. you know, but I'm also one of the few people I know who will admit to having enjoyed the fourth Indiana Jones movie. And I actually got kind of a kick out of watching the 1990s wild, wild West film. So, you know, my taste in cinema is somewhat suspect. <laughs> so either you have low expectations or bad taste, which doesn't bode well for me as your wife, or yeah, but you've been with me for 14 years, so you're stuck. <laughs> yeah, I okay. Despite all of my quibbling here, the book and and you know, we'll get to final thoughts, but I know that I disliked the movie more than you did <laughs> because while we were sitting there trying really hard not to talk about it because I wanted to save everything for the podcast, it was very hard for me to not groan and moan and roll my eyes and write angry cursy notes I did write angry cursy notes um <laughs> but it just it it just it could have been so much better there's there's another little thing that was in the book that I actually liked a lot which was like this different idea of leadership because ender encounters a different a bunch of different varieties of leaders right you know mm -hmm. he's in the the launch group when he's first there and the the, the leader is dap and dap is mom quote unquote mom i'm the one who's going to take care of you and then he's in this first little army salander uh, salamander army and it's bonzo and bonzo's like really got a bug up his ass and he's like gonna he's very macho and he's whatever and 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 also very controlling you will do what i say and nothing else right exactly and with no creativity or imagination that you know then we have um he goes in the book he's then in another army for a little while the, the rat army right yeah rat mm -hmm. and it's and we should say that the armies are named after animals they're not armies yeah. composed <laughs> of, of animals. animals yes very very important here um and this guy is is a Jewish guy who's in charge of this girl. And it's it's Rose the nose, like it's mm -hmm. Bruce or whatever. And so like he, but he doesn't like sleep in his commander's quarters. He sleeps in the barracks with the men. And he, you know, he's very casual and like everyone's naked and everyone's, you know, whatever. And so like he's trying to be like, what are the guys? You know, that's how his leadership is. And it's much more about the group and like 
he doesn't trust himself and he doesn't trust his other people. So Ender learns from all of these different leaders. And then Ender himself is a leader and he has to decide how to be a commander, not just with the group uh, in that little army, they become the dragon army. Um, but then eventually when he is doing more commander stuff and he has his little sub commanders and they're his friends that are now come and he has to decide at one point, like, they're going to be friends, but I can't really be their friend because I'm their commander, you know, and he has to control his face. He can't laugh and joke around with them. And he has to, and, and so like, it's this isolation that was imposed on him at the beginning. And then it's the self-imposed isolation towards the end and seeing Ender realize how to be a good leader and realize the different and taking a little bit from each of those different ex encounters, it shows us building and learn and becoming a better becoming more of the genius that we keep being told mm -hmm. he is the movie it's like so fast there's only a couple of battles there's only one little army bonesos a jerk and then he you know picks a fight and then he dies and like i mean we just we just right through so fast that there's no time to really sit with these different leadership styles and so we just we just basically cut out this whole major theme yeah I, I think that it was there to an extent in the film but in the film it was a very reactive thing and it was primarily reactive to bonzo yeah you know at one point you see ender the first time he's leading the army he's given into one of the uh the war games and he says okay if you've got a better idea than mine, I want to hear it. I don't care who it comes from. If it's a good idea, we're going to use it, right. which is a direct contrast with Bonzo. In the book, that worked a little better because you had uh, Rose who had a similar attitude, but lacked the willingness to really say, but I have to ultimately make a decision and somebody has to be in charge. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ender kind of walks the path in between where he says, I'm not the only one here with good ideas. If you've got one, I want to hear it. But ultimately, I'm going to be the one who makes the decision. Yeah. And yeah, I thought that that was handled much better in the book. It, it was present in the film, but it was, I think they were trying to make it into a bigger thing. But because you really only had one person he was being clearly contrasted with, which was Bonzo, it didn't really come through as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I know that part of it is just because the movie was sped up, you know, everything mm -hmm. was happening faster and they had they had so much to get to, but it, it was, it was disappointing. I think the other thing that they did really well in the book and they tried to do a little bit in the movie, but it didn't work as well was undervalued people who thought differently than him sufficiently. And this is a quality, I think of a good leader that people who in his launch group had been his bullies, he was willing to take on if they proved themselves to be capable of doing things and you see that with one character a little bit in the film but it was much clearer in, in the book yeah so he definitely has some some caesar-like things i'm going to conquer you and then i'm going to make you part of my group the movie was such a compressed time frame that it was kind of like a cliff notes version of the book and it suffered for that i think yeah and we got to see him being a genius in the book. We got to see him thinking about strategies and like mm -hmm. figuring things out. There's this one thing, you know, okay, you got to go into this thing and it's basically laser tag. And, you know, and once you get hit, then you're frozen and you can't fight, you know, fire back, blah, blah, blah. And then there's like, yeah, but if they shoot my feet, I can still, you know, shoot with my arms and stuff. So if I point my feet at them, then, you know, oh, like mm -hmm. that was really smart. And then they're like, okay, but you know, you have to get so many things and you got to go over here. And then towards the end, you got to get, this number of people through the gate. And then that's how, you know, you won. And at one point he's like, so we can just ignore the whole battle and just 
basically fly through the gate and then we've technically won like hey mm-hmm. look at that you know i mean it was it was good it was actually funny and and well done and the movie mm-hmm. was just so compressed and so fast and we it's weird because they did spend a fair amount of time floating around in the zero g but it was it it's visually interesting and i will say this movie you kind of need to see on the big screen like our screen's pretty big and i was like this would have been so much cooler on the big screen mm-hmm. um but it it just it, it just it couldn't do what it needed to do in my opinion to to really make it work so uh do are you ready to talk about card sure okay so <laughs> card helped write this script he wrote actually six different scripts through the course of this um, he had a chance to get the movie made a couple different times, but he was waiting because he wanted to have a lot of control over it. And Card actually has a cameo in the movie. So for all those people, when I was like, I'm going to boycott this movie, and I'll talk about the boycott in just a second, who are like, well, you know, he's pretty far removed. He's not getting a lot. No, no. He's on the production. He gets credited as being a screenwriter and he has a cameo. So supporting this movie is supporting Card. Okay, so here's his controversy. <laughs> In July 2013, the group Geeks Out boycotted the film in protest of Orson Scott Card's views on homosexuality and same-sex marriage. The calls for a boycott were picked up by a number of other groups and individuals in the media. In response to the boycott, Card released a statement that was really... Yeah, I think I know the statement you're talking about. He's like, it's not about politics, blah, blah, blah. And also marriage is only between men and women. And there are some quotes I'm not going to read because they're awful. He, he, he is a disgusting individual who believes really horrible things about the LGBT community and is not shy about saying them. So anyways, was it Lionsgate tried to distance themselves from card, but you know, the movie was there. And um, a lot of like some of the, a lot of the writers were like, oh, we didn't know that he felt this way. He's the uh, card is uh, very active in the Mormon church. And I'm just going to say not all Mormons, but this is a particular very vocal Mormon who was very involved in the whole prop eight thing that was happening, um, mm-hmm. keep, trying to keep marriage away from the LGBT community. So it's nice to read that the film lost $68 million for the studio and was included on the list of Hollywood's biggest box office bombs of 2013. And because the boycott, because a bunch of people didn't go see this movie, and because I think the movie wasn't that great, there's not going to be a sequel. They were originally planning on making a sequel, but as of right now, seven years, eight years later, there, there's not, there are no plans for that. So there you can you can find orson's got cards horrible uh, opinions on the internet i i will probably link to a few of them i'm going to link to one particular article that i wrote there's a gal i can't remember now if it was slate or salon hold on let me look here salon and she was like i love this book this book is so good it's about violence it's like you know what and she's interviewing him and trying to talk to him and trying to give him the benefit of the doubt and he just keeps digging and digging and digging and saying horrible horrible things and this lesbian uh jewish lady is writing this article going oh my god what is wrong with this man and it is it is a very interesting article to read because you can just watch her 
lose her faith in, you know, and then have to become to terms with the fact that like this book can still be important to her and she can still like the book and like really wish that the person who wrote it lives a very unhappy, awful rest of his life because he's such a horrible person. So I will link to that because it is, it is well worth the read and it has in his own words, a lot of his opinions about stuff. So it reminds me of when you guys did, um, Fahrenheit 451 and you uh, found the interview with Ray Bradbury where he was talking about how disgusted he was with people learning you know shocking factoids instead of actually learning what was really going on in the world and he had Fox News playing on the background yes yeah so uh, I I have a few thoughts here and the first is I think you and I share an opinion of Morrison Scott Card as a person so I'm not going to get too far into that yeah I think he's a bigot and I'm not going to try to defend him And that's that a lot of people I know who were shocked, you know, around the time that the film adaptation was happening, you know, I, I wonder how closely they read the book or maybe they were things that I haven't read the 1991 revision. So, but like in the uh, version we read, there's a lot of fairly socially conservative statements. uh, Like when they're talking about why there aren't more girls in the battle school, Oh, well, evolution works against girls being able to be fighters. And I'm just thinking, yeah, tell that to the Israeli army. Specifically, okay, this is it. In battle school, battle school is broken up between normal school with an emphasis on math and computers, strategy, tactics, and then zero gravity laser tag. That's what battle school is, okay? So we're talking STEM, STEM and, and physical violence. Ender asks if the program is all boys. Graf says, There's a few girls. They often don't pass the test to get in. Too many centuries of evolution working against them. None of them will be like his sister anyway. Yeah. So because so, because girls can't do math and science. Right. So, you know, when I'm reading the book in my 40s and I'm reading this, I'm just thinking, yeah, how did you guys not pick up on some of this? Because that that's the most egregious thing. But there were other points throughout the book where I found myself thinking, huh, <laughs> well, this yeah. guy's a product of the 50s, isn't he? Yeah. And there's there's I mean, there, there like I said before, there's a Jewish character who. And not just that every time you put a character from an ethnic group, you have to make them a paradigm of virtue. Otherwise you're saying bad things about their race. But I did feel like there was some anti-Semitic overtones happening. Uh, and, and we have like this religious persecution aspect because again, Ender's right. a third, his parents. And were- if you want to have multiple kids, it's purely, you know, they, they portray you as being a religious fanatic even though, no, you just want to have more children because you want a large family, which is a very Mormon Mormon thing. thing. And in the book, Ender's mother was actually Mormon. And he has this whole thing about like, you know, was, you know, he, was he loved or did they create him because they were just, you know, trying to buck the system and fight, you know, against this control, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and definitely in the, in the eighties and, and there's this whole thing of the new world order, which is, I mean, there's, there's a lot of that is here. Yeah. So, and, and it should be said that it's not uncommon for science fiction authors that are around the age of Orson Scott Card, or especially people who are older than him, to hold a lot of these views. So it's not shocking when this stuff comes up. At the same time, that doesn't mean you have to support it. You know? Right. And and to their credit, they didn't put that in the movie, right? Yeah. You know, Petra. There's a girl in the in the film, and she 
is given a little bit more to do than she is even given in the book. Um, she, but you know, she's, she's definitely there. She's treated like an equal. She's a sharpshooter, yada, yada. And they don't make a big deal, but there is racial diversity in the movie. They don't have the anti-Semitic thing in the movie. There's no, there's an interesting change in the book. I, we are calling them four mics because that's what it is in the whole series. But in the book, they're basically called buggers the whole time. And right. Um, there's a little bit of confusion of whether or not Orson Scott Card realized what buggering is slang mm-hmm. for. Um, I wondered that at the time, uh, because it is definitely a homophobic slur. And there's mm-hmm. there is teasing and, and pseudo bullying happening in the battle school. And it all has to do with somebody's butt. You're a butt wiggler and I'm looking at your butt and I want to kiss your butt, which on the one hand, it could just be stupid kids being stupid, but that it's our only example mm-hmm. and it's homoerotic and they're boys. And there's like one boy who kisses Ender on the cheek at one point and Ender feels like he's been given something like holy, but it's also perverse. I mean, it's like this whole thing. Okay, so they they definitely downplayed like all of that or left it completely out of the movie, which was a good call. So that's cool. You made some good choices, but it's still Orson Scott Card getting getting paid for this movie. So, like, you're still supporting somebody who who has, and then and then not even to mention all the bigoted stuff against the LGBT community and marriage equality, and just general human rights, and that you know uh, his his opinions on interracial marriages and 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 marriage equality. It's it's a lot, you guys. So. He's very much somebody who would have been at home had he been, if the he'd been the age he was in the 80s, in the 50s, he would have fit right in. It's interesting because we just did Minority Report, which Philip K. Dick has his own issues. But, you know, when you when you make the movie, you, you take the idea of the story and then you can, you know, mm-hmm. put it modern day and you do a bunch of cool stuff with it. So there's that. That's our card controversy. Uh, you know, one thing I'd actually like to say is that I, I, I find it really interesting that we find ourselves having to think about the authors of books that have meant a lot to us. And I, I think it's a perfectly fair thing. But, you know, you mentioned the person who did the interview with Orson, Orson Scott Card, and I've met other people over the years who talk about how this book was all about tolerance and empathy, which is not really what this book's about. But that's another matter, you know, and they've just find it interesting that the author or distressing rather that the author has such a lack of empathy. We see a very similar thing happening right now with J.K. Rowling. And, you know, neither of these was the first and I'm sure they won't be the last of authors that uh, people have these conflicted feelings about. And I think that the one thing that, you know, I do think about is if a book hits you in a certain way or affects you in a certain way. Even if you find out later that the person who wrote it was somebody who you have a problem with, it still initially hit you that way. That doesn't mean you have to advocate people paying money to buy it or anything like that. But I still think that there's a legitimacy to having that initial feeling. Yeah. I, and we talk about this a lot, actually, on this podcast about death yeah. of the author and saying, you know, you can let the author go. I, as a postmodern deconstructionist reader myself, I prefer to go into books blind usually and not have a lot of extra contextual information about the author and the life and what they were and were it's fun to think of that after the fact and it's it's a definitely a lens you can use for critical analysis but i don't think it's the be all and end all by any means yeah so if you like this book 
I'm not going to yuck your yum, but at the same time, I, I think it's important to vote with your wallet. And so there's a reason I wouldn't spend any money on the 50 shades of gray books or the movies, not just because I think they're badly written and, and, uh, and not my jam baby, but also because I think that they do a disservice to domestic violence and rape victims and the BDSM community. And so like the same thing with this, like I am glad that we are able to see this movie now but I was also very glad that we didn't spend any, I have no idea how long that book has been here. I thought it was yours, but it sounds like you thought it was mine. It's just a mm -hmm. book that's here in the house and it's very used. Obviously it's almost falling apart. So I'm pretty sure if anybody bought it at one, any point, it was bought used. And that makes me happy. <laughs> I'm glad yeah. that I'm glad that Orson's got cards, not getting much of our money. But I do agree with you that it is it's OK to like the things you like and it's OK to separate the art from the artist. And I'm going to have a different line than you're going to have than the next person, the next person. You know, some people can't watch any Kevin Spacey movies. Some people will only watch certain Kevin Spacey movies. Some people will watch all the Kevin Spacey movies. And I don't really feel like it's my place to tell you what to do with your time or your money in that respect. Um, but I can just tell you what I do with mine. And before we get into anything else, and before I start ranting about Chick-fil-A, I actually find that it's better if you want to protest something with your wallet to choose to not spend your money in one place, but then to actively spend your money in other more helpful places. So, you know, it's one thing to say, well, I'm not going to spend money on this because I, I don't want to support that, but then find the opposite, find the thing you do want to support and do that. So don't steal Star Trek, <laughs> buy your Discovery or Paramount, you know, subscription so that they continue to make good Star Trek shows, you know, or, or buy the movies that you enjoy watching. Don't don't pirate them and buy the books that you enjoy reading and and buy LGBT merchandise from LGBT people so that you're supporting. I think it's it's good to support with our money as opposed to just punishing but withholding money. Um, and I swear this is not a plug to, for you to go and join my Patreon. But if you want to, it's definitely there for you. <laughs> I think if you're looking at spending money, if you're looking to get something that is produced by someone who you have problems with, and you don't want money going into their pocket. Another thing to remember is you can buy it used and that frequently will support people who you actually do like. Yes, like your independent local used bookstores mm -hmm. for sure. So speaking of Star Trek, would you like to hear the Star Trek trivia? Yes. Okay. It's a little bit light. I think probably because Harrison Ford is obviously, you know, Gandalf in the Harry Potter movies, right? That's Yeah, it was really weird when they had him play the same character in the uh, spin-off Game of Thrones. Right, right. So yeah. strange. Yeah. Um, anyway. But no, so, okay, obviously Harrison Ford is not in Star Trek. He's in Star Wars, which is the lesser of the star things, but that's fine. You messing with Indiana Jones? <laughs> no, <laughs> at all. Um, but here is our, our very limited Star Trek trivia. The first trailer for Ender's Game debuted during the premiere of Star Trek Into Darkness. Hmm. So you went to see Star Trek Into Darkness in the movie theater. I did. Pretty sure I did. I can't remember I which did, one. I did not, so. You would have seen a preview for Ender's Game, and you would have been one of the first people to see that. So there we go. If you think that that was a stretch, wait till you hear this. 
Um, that that's it. That's the stretch. Um, the only other bit that I could find is that there's a bunch of crossover people who are like fan casting, you know, the guy who played Bonzo is being fan cast as Nog from deep space nine in the next star Trek, you know, thing Viola is being, uh, recommended. Like there's a lot of that fan casting happening, but there it's not real. So We'll just have to wait and see. So a little bit light on the Star Trek trivia this time around, but that's okay. Time for final thoughts. Matthew, was this book worth your time? Was the movie worth your time? I'm glad I finally read the book. I wish I'd read it as a teenager because I don't think I got as much out of it. I couldn't relate to it now as I think I would have back then. The film, you know, if you've got a couple hours to kill and it's showing on cable TV and you can flip channels to it, yeah, you might as well watch it. I don't think I'll ever watch it again. I'm not upset that I watched it. I'm also not thrilled that I watched it. It's just one of those things I watched. It does, however, have 100% of your USRDA of grumpy Harrison Ford. Like you, I'm glad I finally read this book in a way that I will remember that I read it. I'm glad I didn't read it as a teenager because I was a melodramatic, woe is me, the world is out to get me kind of teenager. And I feel like this would have like really fed into stuff. And then I would have had to read it again as an adult and like re-examine it. And that's, you know, um, just coming off of high fidelity. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> where I read that. I book was and- just thinking about yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was very impressionable and wanted to be a different person in my teen years. And I feel like this book would have, I was also surrounded by a lot of macho pseudo military adjacent type of I'm the answer to the universe type people. The point is I'm glad I didn't read this as a teenager. I am glad I read it now. I think in terms of sci-fi canon, it's a good one to have read. So I'm glad that I've read it. I think it has some interesting things. I seriously did not enjoy the last, what, 10, 15% of it. I just, that we went into the, some special, it's like 2001 Space Odyssey when you're just like, you're sitting there and you're watching the lights and you're going. So at some point, this is either going to make sense or end, right? And that's really <laughs> what I felt like at the end of this book. But the rest of it was was good, fine. I'm glad, like I said, I'm glad that I read it. Now I can talk about it more and, and know more of the, you know, allusions to it. The, my, my feelings about the movie, I was trying to write something that would be like succinct and like make sense and, you know, kind of sound good. And then I found uh, Joe Morgenstern from the wall street journal. And this is his review of the movie. And there's just, once I've read this, I was like, there's no possible way to sum up my feelings better than this. So this is what he said. Not only does Ender's Game have many scenes in zero gravity, but the zero-sum fiasco has zero drama, zero suspense, zero humor, zero charm, and zero appeal. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, Joe, (laughs) (laughs) you You get me. (laughs) I, I read a review which was saying, compared to Ender's Game, Battlefield Earth is like, you know, the Godfather part two, and all I can think is, I don't think you saw Battlefield Earth because what, however bad you might think Ender's Game was, at least it was more or less coherent. Okay, so apparently we're going to have to do Battlefield Earth. Uh... No, 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 don't. <laughs> I've been nice. I, I bought you a house. <laughs> don't make me do that. <laughs> I don't think that movie's as bad as you think it no, is. No. 
I, I actually like the movie because it's so bad. It's so ineptly made that it's hilarious. It tickles my mystery science theater funny bones. I just don't want to read that book. That's a, that's an L. Ron Hubbard book. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, now, you, yeah. you want to watch and make fun of the movie? I'm right there with well, you. Well, maybe we'll just have to do a riff tracks <laughs> or something of it. But okay. Well, Matthew, this was fun. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for, you know, reading a book and being like, Hey, we should do this. Cause it was fun. Yeah. yeah. So tell the people what you do and who you are and how they can get in touch with you or find you or whatever. So I am the writer and presenter of another podcast that Kalia produces called Ghostropology, where I would describe it as an anthropologist and middle-aged dad overthinking ghost stories. Uh, if that sounds appealing to you, come on in and have a listen. And you can reach me at ghostthropology at gmail.com. You can find the podcast at KMMA Media. Click the tab for Ghostthropology. So there we go. An archaeologist talking about ghost stories and folklore over on Ghostthropology. And yes, it, it's just Matthew's voice and his occasional interview. I do help production-wise, but it's more putting it on the website and doing the, the audio editing. But yes, so thank you so much for being here. And as you all know, you can reach me at pages of popcorn podcast at gmail.com and pages of popcorn podcast on the website, kmmamedia.com and Facebook. Don't bother with Twitter. I am on Instagram. And if you are so inclined to support either one of our shows on Patreon, $5 a month gets you early access and a sticker occasionally some other fun stuff and we would love your support. So thank you for that. And thank you so much for listening. And thank you so much for being here, Matthew. Thank you for having me. Okay. I guess we're done. <laughs> yep. Which is good because these headphones are really beginning to hurt my ears. <laughs> yes.